Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. Amy moved in at the start of the year. She was dark, petite, and very pretty. For the first while, our only significant interaction was her hissing furiously at me from the shadows at the top of the stairs, which gave me quite a start last thing at night. The rest of the time she spent hiding under the new lodger's bed. After a while, I asked Mariana, the lodger, what was the story with the cat? It turned out that she, Mariana, was slightly allergic to Amy, the cat, and so rarely petted her. We didn't get into why she then had a cat in the first place, but nevertheless, there we were. I spent time getting to know Amy, mainly by feeding her and gently reaching through the banisters to pet her whenever she'd appear at the top of the stairs. It worked a treat, and within a couple of months she was following me around the house, demanding attention. I felt no small amount of pride, thinking to myself, if I've done nothing else in this life, at least I have habituated one cat. Then Mariana announced she was moving to a bigger, more central apartment, one that unfortunately couldn't accommodate her cat. She reassured me that it would only take a week or two for her to find a new home for Amy. That was six months ago, so I guess I have a cat now. I'd often thought about getting one, but figured that as I travelled so much for work it would be impractical. Then the great unpleasantness began, and I found myself hardly travelling at all. And anyway, isn't it nice to have a cat? I was heading to the airport recently, on my way to visit family in Canada, when I got a frantic call from another Amy. This one, a friend from Paris, who writes wonderfully gruesome horror novels for young adults. It turns out she was also heading to the airport, and the friends she was going to stay with in Dublin had all just come down with COVID, and could she possibly sleep on my couch? No, 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 not at all, I said. She could have the whole house, as long as she didn't mind feeding the cat. I explained there was a kind of a robot feeder thing that clicked open with a serving of dry food every morning, and all she'd have to do was feed her in the evenings and let her in and out. Amy, the writer, was tickled to hear the cat had the same name, and that she was black as night, like a true witch's familiar. It was some time later that I learned what had happened the next morning. I'd neglected to mention the robot feeder thing had a feature where a brief snippet of the owner's voice could be recorded, then played back to alert the cat that breakfast was served. That morning, while Amy, the writer, was still half asleep, Coming to in a strange bed in a new house, she was suddenly jolted wide awake when she heard an odd noise downstairs, followed by my unmistakable voice calling, Amy? 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 She didn't know what was happening. Had I suddenly returned from Montreal? Did I have some kind of international intercom set up? Or the worst possible option... Had my plane gone down overnight, and was she now somehow hearing my ghost trying to communicate with her? It didn't take her too long to figure out what was going on. But up until that point, it seems that between us, my cat and I had managed to absolutely terrify the Queen of Teen Screen.
The rain has stopped, but there's still no way into Leitrim village. No, all flooded, says the postman in Knock Vicar, looking up from his newspaper. Even the tractors can't get in. I ask if he can suggest an alternative route, and I'm not delighted to hear his response. Hike back the way I came to Boyle, then take the main road to Carrick and Shannon, before turning north again. How long is that, I ask, afraid to look at the answer I expect on my own map. Oh, about 25 kilometres, he says casually, sipping his tea before returning nonchalantly to the day's news. My rucksack suddenly feels heavier. Waking up over 400 years ago, in the early days of January 1603, Donal O'Sullivan faced his own problems. After 13 days marching, he and his followers were exhausted. Their boots were worn through and feet swollen. The snow was heaped up by the wind, no one had food, and to make things worse, they could trust no one. They'd suffered unspeakable horrors on their march north from West Cork, abandoning the dead and dying before they were set upon by those pursuing them, of whom there were many. If only he had submitted to the crown. It all started a year previously at the Battle of Kinsale, where Irish forces were routed by the English. Instead of admitting defeat, the warlike and independent O'Sullivan returned to his landholdings in Berra to continue the fight. Not surprisingly, the English laid waste to his lands, destroyed his castles and eventually seized all his livestock. Facing certain starvation, on New Year's Eve 1602, he and 1,000 followers set out from Bantry in County Cork for the rebel O'Rourke of Brefna, the only ally he could rely on. Pursued by the McCarthys in West Cork, he was attacked by the Barrys in Buttevant and the McEgans in Tipperary. At the River Shannon, O'Sullivan's followers were forced to kill their horses and use their hides in order to make boats to get across the river. Some people drowned, others were left behind, and no sooner were the rest across than they were attacked again, this time by a combined force of Irish chieftains and the English at the First Battle of Ockram. Few gave them any aid until they arrived in North Roscommon and Knock Vicar, where a barefoot man, wrapped in linen and wearing a bandana on his forehead, stepped forward and showed them a route to Leitrim village, 15 miles away. I eventually found a way myself, but only after calling ahead to the hotel I was staying at. Ah no, the road is fine, isn't it dance, says a girl on the phone over the sounds of glasses clinking. Yep, one of the other staff here came another way today, all good. Like O'Sullivan, on that lonely morning in 1603, I take her at her word, and find a northerly road to the crossing at Battlebridge, before passing through lonely country roads watched over by fir trees. O'Sullivan made it to Leitrim village on the 14th of January with just 35 of the 1,000 people who set out with him a fortnight previously. 18 were soldiers, 16 servants, and one was a woman, the wife of his uncle, Dermot. A few others arrived in twos and threes, but for the most part his retinue perished or dispersed, from tiredness, sickness or wounds in that bleak midwinter of 1603. O'Sullivan eventually made his way to Spain, but the reminders of his march live on in song and story. Crossing points and places bear his name, and along the route of his march, the surnames of West Cork still dot the way their ancestors came 400 years ago, on what is now called the Bear of Brefna Way, the longest path in Ireland, and a fitting reminder to a man who refused to give in, no matter what the circumstances or weather. 
Pauline, I think you're still on mute, is the phrase that best sums up the past two years for me. On Zoom calls, I used to forget to turn on my microphone. So while I thought I was being funny or making a powerful point, I was just waving my arms around in silence while everyone felt a bit sorry for me. As everyone knows, people regularly freeze on Zoom. Mid-sentence, they just freeze. There was a time when this was the most exciting thing to happen all week. Eventually, a brave soul would say, Can you hear us, Mary? Mary, can you hear us? Like a doctor in a hospital drama. The strangest thing I've done on Zoom is stand-up comedy. Comedians are a wily bunch. It didn't take long for us to figure out we could continue gigging online. For an art form that's dependent on shared laughter and timing, it seemed like the obvious fit. The first few gigs, all the mics were left on. It'd be nice to hear the audience laughing, we told each other. We did hear the audience laughing. We also heard them shouting at their kids, cooking dinner and doing the hoovering. I remember one woman chuckling away whilst cleaning out a cutlery drawer. So, early on, all the audience mics were muted. That proved to be a new challenge. I would sit in my living room, talking into a screen, telling well-timed jokes to complete silence. But watching the screen closely, you could still kind of tell if the gig was going well. You could see when people laughed, and you could see when they didn't laugh. You could also see how and where they were watching you. Sometimes you'd be carried from room to room. Sometimes you'd be in bed with the person while they lay on their side, chuckling away. Sometimes it was a blank screen with the name of the person, or a still photo of them doing one of two things, being active outdoors or looking professional. It was strange not to hear the audience's laughter, but stranger still was reading the audience's laughter. They would write, Ha ha and LOL in the chat box. Sometimes they would write things that were related to my material, which at the time was a lot about my cat. But by the time I'd noticed them, the moment had gone. Oh, you have a cat too, Sean. Excellent. If I spoke to somebody directly, it would take them a moment to realise they'd been spoken to, and then they would reply. And then I would say, oh, I think you're still on mute. And then they would unmute themselves and repeat what they'd just said. So let's just say they weren't the most spontaneous of interactions. I found it best to stick to my material and give the audience as little to do as possible. I get very nervous before gigs, and online gigs were no different. I would be pacing around my living room, trying to quell my nerves, listening to the pre-show music coming from my laptop. After a live gig, you have time to decompress by chatting to fellow comedians or members of the audience. But after my first Zoom gig, I sat alone, fizzing with post-show energy, silence ringing in my ears. I walked to my kitchen, made myself some tea, and watched my cat, Doris, wash her face. Whatever this was, at times it felt like the exact opposite of a comedy club. But both audience and comedians were desperate for connection, so it worked, sort of. 
which is the essence of the Zoom experience. It works, sort of. Maybe there'll come a time when we'll be nostalgic about Zoom and Teams and the rest of it, like we are about chopper bikes and leg warmers, Tamagotchis and MySpace. Time by then having erased how much we all now hate it. Thankfully, theatres are open and live comedy has returned. But Zoom still has its role to play. It seems perfect for this twilight world where we need to connect but can't always do so in person. Where we are emerging into a different reality. Where we are all still slightly on mute. In its sheltered cutting, the late writer Leland Bardwell's cottage stood on the brink of the Atlantic. She'd bought the coastal property in 1992 for £12,000. It's usually the other way around, Leland had told me. I borrowed £300 from my children and the rest was an arts award. The seller lived in America. When she sent the money... A big, rusted, old-world key arrived in the post. The transaction done entirely on trust. No deed of title changed hands. If Leland occupied the house for 14 years, she could apply to have new deeds drawn up in her name. It was the first property she'd ever truly owned. Even at that, she'd have to live to be 84 before she could rightfully call the cottage her home. Born on the 25th of February, 1922, Leland liked to say, I'm as old as the state. A professional writer who did nothing but write, no teaching, no ties to dollar-rich American universities, she wrote and she read. Arriving home with a new book, she often couldn't wait to enter her house and instead sat in her metallic gold Renault Clio and read by the light outdoors. Early one spring morning, in 2011, when Leland was 89, I arrived at her cottage to find the back door open, as usual. Are you up and about, Leland? Up, anyhow, she called to me. Inside, I heard her footling in her bedroom. Then, in the quiet, her radio sounded out of tune. It was a cause of consternation and confoundment when Leland meant to adjust the volume and changed the tuning by mistake. Before she appeared, I turned the knob ever so slightly because my intentions were good, but she wouldn't appreciate me meddling. On her kitchen table, a big adjustable spanner rested on a sheaf of newspaper. I turned and lifted the lid of a large stockpot on the stove and found a hulking, boiled red lobster. The spanner presumably intended to bash open the luckless 
crustacean. Where did you get the lobster? Somebody left it on my doorstep, Leland said, from the depths of our bedroom. I transferred the lobster onto a plate to bring to her fridge that held a mini yoghurt carton and the last crumbs of Madeira cake. Did your home help come this morning? The one who calls to see if I'm dead? The one meant to see you've had breakfast? It's all rather awkward, actually, Leland said, her steady gaze on me when she entered the kitchen. She kept moving things around on me and got into a terrible tiz when I told her, stop. Leland would have been the one in the terrible tiz, but I passed no remarks. She was big on kindness, but short on tolerance. Only people who knew her understood that Leland's apparent ferocity masked her lifelong shyness. The unencouraged child, who'd buried her head in books to escape the belief heartlessly ingrained in her by her mother, that she was ungainly, unbeautiful, unloved. Leland put on the kettle and we pulled our chairs up to the kitchen table. Her short story collection, different kinds of love, had been reissued and I'd had a call from Leland the night before to tell me she'd won the Turkish Pen Organisation's D.D. Korkut Short Story Award. Could I help her write an acceptance speech on the blasted new computer? We worked until we had a serviceable draft the gist of which said there was a general feeling that all Celtic peoples were the same. But we Irish were in fact proud of our individuality and didn't want to be of the one tribe. As Leland saw it, we had ended up living on the edges of society, as though we had invited the stronger, more practical and therefore more powerful to brush us away. Which made us Quick thinkers, she said, drawn to the quicker art form of the short story. In this, we were like children at the circus, pushing our way to the front through a crowd that wanted rid of us. When a news bulletin replaced the classical music on our radio, I suggested we take a break. I opened the knapsack I'd brought and produced a packed lunch. Leland clapped her hands delightedly and treated my forward thinking that we might need to eat as an act of genius. At the end of the day, I found it hard to say farewell. Before I left, I made certain her fire was banked up and the lobster's hard, protective shell had been peeled away, its tender innards plated for supper. The speech got a further polish and I read back the results. Leland listened attentively, paused and said, I'm losing words and I've always loved words.
a chestnut tree flourished in the garden of the house where I grew up. It was a tree that carried disputed history within its branches. My two uncles argued as to which of them sowed the nut that became the tree. It was a squabble that was of little concern to me at the time. The tree was a place of adventure, something massive and sturdy. Its bark was welcoming to my arms when I climbed skywards. It could be the mast of a pirate ship, part of Sherwood Forest or even the Amazon jungle. From those heights I was able to look out across our flat landscape. I saw the confused mishmash of small fields with their varying stains of green, the separations of fence and hedge forcing them to turn inwards upon themselves. To me, high up in the canopy of leaves, the world beyond resembled a toy farm. The animal's miniature and human activity a thing that might be shuffled and rearranged by a boy's fingers. I was an only child. They generally make good eavesdroppers. Early on, I became adept at wearing the cloak of invisibility, of staying still and tuning my ears to conversations that were never intended for my consumption. I listened to words and phrases that made little sense, but that nonetheless registered. I heard words like blue shirts, free state, anti-treaty, pro-treaty, Collins, de Valera. Sometimes voices became raised, heated even. Labels were hurled as insults to describe friends and neighbours, and despite my attempts to remain unobserved, I was often ushered out of earshot. Old battles were fought in our kitchen. No blood was lost, but tea was often spilled. Sometimes doors slammed and the name Lloyd George weaponized at a departing back. Following these wars of old words, I often retreated to the safety of the high chestnut tree. I would later come to understand that some of those small fields spread before me were allocated to their owners following the War of Independence by the Land Commission. The Commission was set up in 1881, but after independence, it continued in existence with expanded powers for compulsory purchase. The distribution of mandatory acquired land was believed to be deeply politicised. Many of the heated arguments I overheard related to the allocation of such fields. Three decades after the war was finished and the treaty signed, all wounds flared up in the most unexpected domestic arenas. Our area was not highly mechanised. Low farm income forced neighbours to rely upon each other's generosity. The mail system was necessary at busy times in the agricultural calendar. Stallions, bulls and boars were borrowed and swapped, but you needed to be careful who you asked and how you did it. The unwritten social order was as complex in its choreography as the Japanese tea ceremony. In this context, I was recently reminded of similar matters, but of a Japanese nature. Fifty years ago, in 1972, after 28 years of hiding in the jungles of Guam, local farmers out hunting discovered Sergeant Yokoai. He was a Japanese soldier who fought for his country in that Pacific island. In 1941, the Japanese attacked and captured Guam, 
1944, after three years of Japanese occupation, US forces retook the island. It was at this time that Yokoai, left behind by the retreating Japanese forces, went into hiding rather than surrender to the Americans. In the jungles of Guam, he learned to hunt and survive undetected. He did so for the next three decades, waiting for the return of the Japanese and also waiting for his next set of military orders. After he was discovered in 1972, he was finally discharged and sent home to Japan, where he was hailed as a national hero. He subsequently married and returned to Guam for his honeymoon. Those who have studied his life claim that in his heart he never surrendered and that deep inside, until his death at the age of 82, the war continued. The last time I visited my birthplace, I was pleased to see that chestnut tree is still alive and flourishing. Nowadays it no longer matters which uncle planted it. The fields it overlooks appear larger than I remember as a boy and there seem to be fewer fences driving them apart. Fresh air flows freely to their common benefit. From ground level all looks both prosperous and harmonious but then again age precluded me from climbing up the tree and examining how things might look from a height. Underneath the spreading chestnut tree I loved him and he loved me There I used to sit up on his knee Neat the spreading chestnut tree There beneath the boughs we used to meet All his kisses were so sweet All the little birdies went tweet tweet Neat. I've driven 350 kilometres and tiredness is beginning to nag at the edge of my concentration. I struggle not to miss the turn onto my beloved peninsula which juts out into the Atlantic on our southern coast. I indicate and swing left, heading towards the sea. The road narrows as it hugs the shore, winding around coves and inlets, reaching out into the bay. With each turn, a new vista opens up of sea and land and sky. Colours change as high clouds sail by, fracturing the light in a myriad of ways. The tide is in, the sea a shimmering reflection of what's above. A heron rises over the seawall, flying just ahead of my car until something diverts it back out over the water. I'm nearly there. Another few twists and turns and I am home. Except I'm not home. Home is Dunleary in Dublin, the place where I've lived almost all of my life. Dunleary's in my bones. My history is knitted into the fabric of the town. My stories are held in the memory of the walls and the streets and the earth there. So how can this tiny hamlet of Ahakista in West Cork a place I've only known for six years, feels so much like home. Have I ancestors from this place? Have I belonged here long before I ever belonged to Dunleary? This tiny corner of West Cork seems to provide me with something I crave, something I can't explain, but something I need to experience regularly. Time is different here. 
languid days, strolling along meandering lanes that rise and fall through oceans of fern, stopping at field gates to talk to cows or perhaps a donkey. Hours spent on the little stony beach, watching the ebbing tide and bobbing boats in the cove. It is in Ahakista that I seem to make more sense to myself, that I am more serene, that I feel complete. This has happened to me before. A different time, a very different place, a different me. But that same feeling of belonging to somewhere that is not home. I was about 20 when I stepped down from a bus onto the street in Puerto de la Cruz, a town in northern Tenerife in the Canary Islands, and I was overwhelmed by that same feeling of homecoming. The narrow streets with overhanging wooden balconies, spilling words of rapid-fire Spanish from competing TVs, or coffee in the shaded square of the Plaza del Charco, surrounded by local families whose children played just beyond the fountain, all felt foreign, but yet strangely familiar. It feels a lot like falling in love, the recognition that something has shifted deep within, a sense that you are seen by this person or place in a way that is new and that is total. Puerto de la Cruz entranced me, charmed me, right from the start. I knew from that first visit that it would be a place I would return to regularly, and I did during my twenties and my thirties, sometimes twice a year. I did a lot of growing up in that town. Just like my beloved Dunleary, Puerto de la Cruz holds part of my story. We are bound together like former lovers who know each other, body and soul. I no longer feel the need to visit there as often as I used to. But every few years it whispers to my spirit, pulling me back, and I return. We have both changed. I am older, and it is quieter, but the years fall away when we are together. And now I have discovered that same curious magic here in West Cork too. It's in the bottomless blackness of the night. It's in the sound of the sea and the light in winter. It's even in the silence here, which at times is so total it's almost loud. I believe that very often people will arrive in your life just when you need them. Maybe there are places that do that too. Leaving these special places is never easy. A younger me cried each time I left Puerto de la Cruz, even though I knew I would soon return. And although I don't cry quite as easily now, my last night here in West Cork will be tinged with the sweet sorrow of reluctant parting. Home is not just the place where you live. Home is a feeling. It's a safe harbour to shelter from the storms of life a place to recharge and rebalance, a place that accepts and seems to understand you. And as with love, you can find these places where you least expect them. But also like love, they are places that will become a part of you forever. When I wake up in the morning, I'm a hundred years old. My feet on the floor and I'm 99. A good hot shower and I'm looking at 80 after breakfast time 79 Getting younger by the hour, gotta get home by midnight It's a beautiful day, I'm 64 in my new red shoes My kitchen is a dance floor
colouring the darkness of truth. Between a marsh and the hard lines of history, a town breaches its shadows and builds again. Out of the ceaseless flow of dark black water, the past spews up its ghosts and worlds float in. O'Carolan, Cornwallis, Catherine Foley, Captain Wynne, French soldiers ferried out to freedom. The local rebels hanged, a bitter gallows lottery that makes clear the granite grip of power. And clear again, the families evicted from their homes at Ushna. The men who walk the treadmill hour on hour. The ranks of starving women who break down the workhouse gate. More than a thousand steps between the courthouse and their fate. This town was always weighted, rich and poor, a bench of rushes by a Georgian door. Stand at midnight on the cold stone bridge, the stench of rot still hovers from a hill street ridge. No wonder boycott Woodbrook chalked at the edge of town, or cheers raised up when the barracks is pulled down. The Telford organ cannot drown the din of voices calling out to be let in. Recall the pitmen marching from Arigna to these streets in search of better pay and small respect. Hardship and beauty frame the edges here. From the famine graveyard, Schlieveneerens clear. Today a white stretch limo idles past, with Eve and Adam bright, champagne aloft. Bless every stumbling lover in their bliss, the tiny chapels an eternal kiss. Carrick, town of water, anchored to the sky, a lock of music opens. And the heart lets fly. On this morning's programme, we heard The Two Amys by Connor Horgan, O'Sullivan's March by Jodie Clark, then Pauline, I Think You're On Mute, was by Pauline Shanahan, Leland at Home by Brian Layden, Out of the Jungle by Joe Carney, Home from Home by Barbara Scully and finally Colouring the Darkness of Truth a poem by Vincent Woods and that was the 2021 Poetry Town Poem for Carrigan-Shannon in County Leitrim. The music this morning The Twilight Zone theme by John Williams O'Sullivan's March by The Chieftains See You by Depeche Mode Miss McDermott by O'Carolan, played by Donald Clancy on guitar. The Chestnut Tree by Glenn Miller and his orchestra with Marion Hutton on vocals. And finally, Gotta Get Home by Midnight was by Peggy Seeger. Two things you might be interested in if you've enjoyed this morning's programme. One is a new collection of Leland Bardwell's poetry from Lepus Print and that'll be launched this day week at 2pm at the Hawkswell Theatre in Sligo. It's called My Name Suspended in the Air, Leland Bardwell at 100. It's free but ticketed so you can get those at hawkswell.com. 
And the other thing is that Pauline Shanahan is performing her show Warning Edgy Material live at Smock Alley Theatre in Dublin this evening at a quarter past eight. It's part of the Seen and Heard Festival and smockalley.com is the place for tickets. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Michelle Gibson and the producer is Sarah Binchy. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.